Let's, uh, let's start digging into our passage for today. Many of you are aware we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. And one of the things that brings me great joy, I love to study God's Word, I love being in God's Word, but I always, there's something uniquely sweet about studying the life of Jesus Christ. And we are studying this life, we're looking at his life in Matthew's Gospel, written to a Jewish audience. And where we are, we are in the preaching of the King. Matthew emphasizes king and kingdom, and here we're in a three-chapter section, Jesus' most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we looked at the most famous passage of the Sermon on the Mount. Some of the most famous words that Jesus ever spoke with, the Beatitudes, speaking of blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger first for righteousness. Well, this week, We pick up right after that. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 20. Your bulletin says 26. We're not going to make it that far this week. We'll be in Matthew chapter 13, I mean chapter 5, verse 13 through 20. So if you would, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. It'll be on the screen. If you don't have your Bibles, that's quite all right. Hear the Word of our Lord. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, uh, teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God, and all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. God, your word does say that all men are like grass, and that all our glories like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. And Lord, may this be the word that is faithfully preached today. We recognize unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken here today. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, the first 16 verses are the introduction. So he's going to introduce in the first 16 verses the Sermon on the Mount, and then everything that follows will bring to light how we live this out. So he's still in the introduction, and he starts to tell his disciples their identity. Now, you may remember last week I said the Sermon on the Mount is aimed at the disciples. That means it's aimed at people who have repented of their sins, trusted in Christ. They believe he's the Messiah. Now, there are crowds there, and some of the crowds are curious. 
Some of the crowds don't believe he's the Messiah. And while they are welcome to listen in and to hear, that's not the aim of the Sermon on the Mount. The aim of the Sermon on the Mount is to disciples, it's to believers. And he tells them, here's who you are. You are the salt of the earth. Now, salt is used commonly in Scripture. And salt was used commonly in the Old Testament and uh, and in Jesus' times. We use salt a lot today, but not in the same ways. I could go into lots of ways that salt is used. It's used um, to bring flavor, to, uh, for covenants. They would use it to make a covenant with one another. But I want to look at the three prominent ways that salt is used, because I believe that's the three ways that he is telling us this is who we are. So three ways that we see salt used. One, it's used for taste. Secondly, it's used to heal. And third, it's used to preserve. It's used for taste, to heal, and preserve. So we see that salt, we put it on food to make it taste different. I was eating with my wife just two days ago. And she was eating something and said, this doesn't taste quite right. So she took salt and put it on it and said, now it tastes like it ought to. Salt makes things taste the way that they're supposed to taste. You see, God designed this world. He put man and woman in a garden, and they were supposed to live a certain way. But because of the fall, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. So salt makes the world taste more like the way God intended it to be. That means when people encounter you, when they encounter me, when they encounter believers, they are to encounter the world more like it was supposed to be. More like God intended for the world to be. Have you noticed that every person has a taste, so to speak? I don't mean a literal taste, but when you're with somebody... There's an experience you have. There's some people that you are with and they are uh, happy. And you're with them and, and, and you are happy because you're with them. There's other people you may be with and they have a real heavy personality. And you feel heavy when you're with them. There's other people that you enjoy being with immensely. And you say, I never get tired of being with them. And then there's other people, whether we like to admit it or not, that we say, I'd rather avoid them. You see, every Body has some sort of taste. Everybody, people perceive and interact with everyone in some way. You're no different. We're all like that. And people, when they encounter us, they encounter something about us. And he says, you're the salt of the world. So the world is to encounter Christians in a certain way. We're to have a taste. Uh, salt, just like it influenced my wife's food, we are to influence this world. Just like uh, salt made my wife's food taste better, We are to make this world have a sweeter aroma, to make it taste better. That's who we're to be. When people come in contact with a Christian, by and large, their experience should typically be one of delight, of joy. That person made this place taste better. They made it better. That's who we're to be. I was reading about a South African pastor named Andrew Murray. He lived in the 1800s and early 1900s. He had 11 children that would make it to adulthood. Of his 11 children, six were boys. And of those six boys, five of them became pastors. Of his five daughters, four of them married pastors. Of his grandchildren, 10 would become pastors. And 13 would become missionaries. 
Now, why do I tell you all that? Is it to say that, you know, pastor or missionary is is a higher uh, special calling? I would say it's it's a leading. God leads people to it, and there's some uniqueness to it. But whatever you're doing, whether it be in business, education, government work, whatever it may be, know that God can and will use you there. So we're not speaking of a, of a unique calling. What I want you to see, and this is Andrew Murray, he was known for being a kind, gentle, godly man. So much so that his sons looked and said, we want to be like dad. We're going to do what dad did. So much so that his daughter said, we want to marry a guy who's more like dad. And they went and married a guy who does the same thing. So much so that his grandchildren said, we want to do the same things that our fathers and grandfather has done. You see, there was a sweetness, there was a taste, and his children tasted that, and they said, we want to be like that. That's how the Christian is to be. When people encounter you, they should go, I want to be like that person. How they talk to people, how they treat people. I want to be more like them. I see their character. I see who they are. People should have a desiring to be like followers of Christ. Out in this darkened, broken world where everybody's all about themselves. How can I get ahead? How can I take care of myself? How can I make sure my needs are met? We go out and we love selflessly. We look out for others' interests above our own. There's a sweetness to that. So there's a taste the Christian has. Uh, Second thing is it heals. We live in a world that is broken and hurting. And salt, when it goes in a wound, salt stings. It doesn't feel good. But it'll bring healing. That's who we're to be. This world, this world is broken damaged by the impacts of sin, and often the world does not like the Christian interacting with the world. Don't be surprised when the world rejects you. Don't be surprised when the world says, we don't want you around. Though we may have a sweetness to it, there's also a sting to the person who says, I live for the things of God. When everybody around is living for the world and somebody says, I live for something different, everybody else feels the conviction of that sting. But it brings healing. That's what we're to do. We're to be those who bring healing. The third thing, and and I believe this is the one that Jesus is probably uh, focused on, though I think all of them are important, is salt preserves. We don't always, at least my experience, I haven't used salt as a preservative. We've always used refrigerators. Some of you, your experience, you may have used in your life at various seasons salt as a preservative. You put salt on food, you put salt on a meat, and it will help it stay good longer. It makes it where it lasts. And that's what we're to do. You see, whenever we see that Jesus says we're the salt of the world, that implies something about the world. It implies this. The world is rotting. The world is decaying. It's a lie that the world is getting better. The world's not getting better. Humanity left to themselves cannot make this world a better place. No, only the Lord can, and we are what preserves the world and shows them the kingdom to come. When Jesus returns, that's when things will truly be better, when his kingdom and reign comes. But until then, no, we preserve the world waiting for him to return. That's who the disciples were to be, to keep the world from moral decay, 
You remove the influence of Christians from this world and it's a radically different place. Almost unrecognizable to every one of us. No, Christians preserve the world. You've heard the statement, most likely, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. Many of you have heard that statement before. It's a, it's a great statement and, and well-known. That's who we're to be as Christians. We are not to go and remove ourselves from the world. Now, there's been people that do that from time to time. Monks would go out and they would live out in the desert by themselves. But that's never what Scripture speaks of. No, Jesus would go and pray and remove for a season, for a day, for a few days, for 40 days to be tempted but we don't permanently withdraw from this world. No, we're to be engaging in this world, bringing salt and light. We're to persevere this world. We're to bring an agent of healing because Christ is the one who truly brings healings. We're to have a sweet taste to us. Now, one of the challenges of being salt in the world is he says the salt can lose its saltiness. That's one of the challenges. Now, salt, what happens to salt Apparently, if it stops working, it stops preserving. It's still salt, but it doesn't preserve the food like it's supposed to. And for the Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, you're a Christian, you've been redeemed, you will still be a Christian, but you can be ineffective in preserving this world. Ineffective in helping bring healing to this world. Because the Christian, if we're not careful, as we seek to be in the world and not of it, it's easy to cross that line and start to become more of the world. I confess, as I study this week, I ask myself, God, there's, there's ways in my life that I'm often blind to, or I ignore, or I have an excuse. Ways that have become worldly. They may be acceptable, but they're more the ways of this world than the ways of God. See, we're to be in the world, but not of it. And that's always a danger as we enter into the world is that we start to become of the world more than we're in the world and of God. So Christian, know that that's a danger. Jesus speaks to it. He says, the salt will no longer be good for anything except to be trampled under people's feet. It's still salt. You can still be a Christian, but have very little impact upon this world. Now we're to keep our saltiness. We're to have that taste where we impact the world. Now, Jesus is going to move on to a second metaphor here. He's going to say, you are the light of the world. So this is who Jesus, again, as a Christian, this is who you are. The light of the world. Now, light, we know, is necessary when it's dark. When the power goes out here, especially when it first goes out, I can see nothing. My eyes haven't adjusted I can't walk by sight in any way. I walk by feeling. I feel things around me and try to move and try to go get a light because I know if I don't get a light, I can't see. Our world is darkened. Our world cannot see. That's what we do. We turn on the light and show the world the way to God. We turn on the light and show the world a better way to live, to live according to the statutes of God. We turn on the light so that people can see clearly who God is. We turn on the light so that people can see the light and see Christ shining through us. You see, Jesus is to shine through you. He is the light. He's often spoken of the light. And Jesus says, you are the light, church. 
But we can only be the light if Jesus is shining through us. This is the reality of who we are. We are light in a darkened world. And he says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Many Christians, we want to try to live our lives, our Christian life, in such a way that we don't draw attention to the fact we're a Christian. We want to blend in. But Scripture doesn't speak of that very much. It speaks more of shining. Because if people see who you are as a Christ follower and see Jesus in you, uh, Scripture believes that people will be drawn to that. They'll see Christ and see His beauty in you. He says, a city set on a hill. Now, if you go to Israel... All the ancient cities were built on hills. The land is full of hills. And the reason they would do that is because you'd put a wall around the city and nobody could attack a wall on top of a hill. You also could see the enemy coming. But you also, if you were traveling to that city at night, you could know where to go because the city was on a hill from a long way away. You could see the light that the city emanated. And that's who we're to be. We're to be those who show people the way. God in His goodness and in His grace. He could have communicated to the world who He is in many ways. Do you know God could write in the sky right now, believe in my Son Jesus. He's paid for your sins. Trust Him. God could write that in the sky for the whole world to see. He could declare His glory in a lot of ways, but the way He's chosen to do that is through you and I. Taking His Word and declaring it to people. We're to be the light of the world. That's who we are. He says, you don't put it under a basket. No, it shines. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Listen, here's the reason you let your light shine. Are you ready for this? So that they may see your good works. You let your light shine. People see your good works. They see that you live differently. You don't live like everybody else in the world. You serve. You sacrifice. You seek to meet the needs of others. You're patient, you're kind, you're loving, you have a Christ-like character, and others are to see it. Now, some of you are sitting there going, well, doesn't the Bible teach that don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing? And doesn't it say that we aren't to let our deeds be done before others? Well, in chapter 6 of this same sermon, first four verses, it speaks of that. So there is a sense in which you do not let your deeds be done by man for your own glory. Okay? And it can look the same, but it can have very different intent. So sometimes somebody will do something and they desire to do it so that people say, what an amazing person they are. Look at how wonderful they are. Look at what a great Christian they are that people begin to praise you. No, he says, let your good works be done before others. Here's the purpose. End of verse 16. That they may give glory to your Father in heaven. The purpose of your good works done before others is that they see you and go, how could that person do it? It has to be God working in them. Praise God. Praise God that He could use them. Your good works are to bring people to glory in God. All the things we do in this life, they aren't to be about our reputation and our name and our fame and our glory. They're to be for the glory of God. We point to Him. Our lives are to be signposts pointing to the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ, that He is sufficient, He's enough. And that's when we shine the light. We're not saying, hey, look at us. 
We're saying, look, look at our glorious Savior. See Him shining through us. He can use a person even like me. He transformed my life. He changed me. And He can do it for you. Jesus says, this is who you are. So if you're here today as a follower of Christ, I would call yourself a disciple. You've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. You've trusted Him. Jesus says, this is who you are. You are salt, but don't become ineffective as salt. You are light, but don't hide the light under the basket. Let your light shine that others can glory in God. This is the reality of who we are. James Stewart, he was ranked by Preaching Magazine as the, most, as the best preacher of the 20th century. Probably most of us haven't heard of Preaching Magazine and probably haven't heard of James Stewart. He speaks of when he came to Christ, that there was a young woman who greatly influenced him. Her name was Helen Ewing. She would wake up at 5 a.m. every morning to pray. She prayed daily, and she mastered, she was Scottish, but she mastered the Russian language because she was going to Russia as a missionary. That was her heart's desire. She led many people to Christ. People said when she came into a room, there was a an aura of her presence. She had a holiness, a godliness to her that people responded to and respected. She never wrote a book or hymn, but listen to what James Stewart said about her. When I was saved, during a mighty movement of the Spirit of God in Glasgow, Scotland, a young lady was also saved. Her name was Helen Ewing. She was just a slip of a girl but at the very threshold of her new life in Christ, she crowned him as, as absolute Lord and was filled with the Spirit. The rivers of living water just simply flowed from that young girl's life. And although she died at age 22, all of Scotland wept. I know hundreds of missionaries all over the world who wept and mourned for her. Young 22-year-old girl, because of her Christ-like character, her willingness to be salt and light in a bold way, it impacted hundreds around her. In fact, when the, the only thing she had written in was her, her journal. And they found her journal contained names of more than 300 missionaries that she faithfully prayed for. They wrote a book about her life. It's only 21 pages. It's titled, She Was Only 22... The story of Helen Ewing of Scotland, a fragrant, dynamic life. Church, may that be said of you and I, that we had a fragrant, dynamic life, not for our own glory, but for the glory of God, that when people looked at our life, it had a sweet aroma to it, where they were drawn to Jesus. Now in verse 17, Jesus gets to the body of the sermon. And in verse 17, we've got to understand what he's saying here to get the rest of the sermon. He starts off and he says this, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. So he says, do not think. What that means is when you say to somebody, do not think, you have an assumption. They're going to think wrongly. They're going to think that Jesus has come to get rid of the law, to get rid of the prophets. 
He would eat food on the Sabbath. He would do things that they would look and say, you do not do. In the Gospel of Mark, in Mark 19, he says that he declared all foods clean. So some would look and say, hey, he came to abolish. And the word abolish here in the Greek is word for annihilate. Completely get rid of all the Old Testament law and prophets. And when you hear the word law and prophets, typically when they're used together, it's a phrase for the entirety of the Old Testament. So Jesus is speaking, don't think I've come to get rid of all the Old Testament. That's not what I've come to do. I've come to fulfill them. You see, the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, what it's meant to shout to us is a few things. One, someone's coming. This world is not the way it's supposed to be, and someone is coming to save the day. Someone is coming to fix it. It's also meant to show us that you're not good enough. Have you noticed how the heroes of the Old Testament, they have great sin in their life. You look at their lives and you think, why would you tell that about a hero? Because they're sinful, fallen people in need of a Savior, just like you and I are. We are sinful, fallen people who need, desperately need a Savior. When you read the Old Testament, it's meant to shout to you, we need a Savior. So Jesus says He's not come to abolish, but to fulfill the Old Testament. All that it pointed to. Now, when we talk about the Old Testament law, it can get confusing. Some scholars have put the Old Testament law into three categories. And I find these three categories helpful, though they know that they're not biblical and know that they have some overlap. The three categories are this, the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. Here's what the ceremonial law is. It's those laws that govern worship. In the Old Testament, it would have laws that would help you govern how you worshiped. But we don't need to worship like we do in the Old Testament anymore. We don't need to come and offer a lamb each year for forgiveness of sins. Why not? Because Jesus fulfilled it. That lamb was a picture of Jesus, the fulfillment of that lamb. So when we talk about the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, they're not abolished. Jesus fulfilled them. So we go to Him, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament ceremonial law. The civil law. Israel was a government. They were a nation. So they had rules for agriculture. They had rules for disputes when they argued with one another, for diet, for cleanliness and dress. But Jesus comes and He's bringing in His kingdom. He comes and says, I'm going to establish a, a greater kingdom. And we wait for that. So he doesn't abolish that. He fulfills all that the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel is to be, is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So he brings a greater kingdom. We're waiting for him to bring it in the full. The third area is the moral law. And Jesus wants us to see this. You can't keep the moral law. You can't do it perfectly. In the Old Testament, when we think of the moral law, we primarily think of the Ten Commandments. Do you know there's 613 more commandments? Or 603 more for a total of 613 commandments in the Old Testament? A lot of commandments to keep. But by the time Jesus had come along, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the religious leaders added more and more and more laws. Jesus refers to them, and they refer to them as the traditions of the elders. But they were not from Moses. They weren't from God. 
They were rules that people added, such that they said, hey, we're not to work on the Sabbath. Well, what if you are a tailor, you work with clothes, and you accidentally stick a needle in your clothes? Well, you've just done work on the Sabbath. You can't do that. So they had all sorts of rules about everything you can think of, over 10,000 rules to keep. So everybody's walking around feeling defeated. They can't keep it. And Jesus comes and says, I've come to not abolish, but to fulfill. The, the traditions of the elders Jesus didn't deal with, he broke those all over the place. But Jesus never broke a single Mosaic law. He kept the law of Moses perfectly. He did what we cannot do. He came not to abolish, but to fulfill them. And then in verse 18, listen to what he says, For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Now when we speak of the law, he's speaking of the Old Testament scriptures. And when we speak of scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture, all scripture is God-breathed. That, that word is theonoustos. It means that God breathed it exactly as he wanted it said through the unique personalities of over 40 different authors. There are 40 different people who put our Bible together. Our Bible was written over 1,500 years. Written on three different continents. Written in three different languages. Yet in unity, it's, it's perfectly unified because it all comes from one mind, the mind of God. God used these people, their unique personalities, unique giftings in His sovereignty and in His goodness to declare exactly what He would have them to declare and you know we can stand on the firmness of Scripture? We believe that the Bible is the Word of God. He gave it to us exactly as He wanted it. That it is reliable, that it can stand. Now people have questioned that throughout history. So don't be surprised when someone comes and says, Hey, Scripture isn't true because of this or because of that. When you hear that, your first instinct should be, Wait. I'll go research it. I'll ask somebody else or give it time. God's word always bears itself true. There are more than 25,000 sites mentioned in the Old Testament. And they found 25,000 places that correspond with them. Most religious books, the false religious books, are written by one person over the course of 10 to 20 years. Bible, 40 people. 1,500 years, all from the mind of God. Some people say, well, the Bible can't be true. There's things mentioned that we just haven't found. One of the big ones, about 70 years ago, they said, there are no Hittite people. It mentions the Hittites in the Old Testament. They're prominent. We have no evidence. Well, archaeologists kept digging, and they found evidence of a Hittite community. Those people existed. Or take the, Dave, the book of Daniel. Daniel speaks of Nebuchadnezzar's house. It's huge. It's this huge royal house. And people thought, there's no way Nebuchadnezzar had such a big royal house. That couldn't have existed. There's no evidence. Again, wait for it. Be patient. They kept digging. And they found the house of Nebuchadnezzar. In 2000, I went to Israel and at the time, 
People would have said we found almost no proof that King David ever existed. If King David is this prominent king, why don't we have evidence of him? Again, wait for it. He keeps bearing. His word stands. Three years ago, I was in Israel in the part of Jerusalem where they called the city of David and they had dug out the palace of King David. And they had found coins with his name on it. Evidence that King David actually lived. Luke, he claimed to be a historian. We see at the opening of Luke's gospel, he talks about a governor named Quirinius who has a census and people would have to go back to their home city. And people said, we have no evidence of that. And again, wait for it. They found evidence in the Roman archives of a governor named Quirinius. They found evidence that every seven years you took a census. And in Egypt, they found a papyrus that said people would return to their hometowns to take a census. The Bible keeps bearing itself true. It is trustworthy. It is reliable. If any of you here, if you ever have somebody come up and, and think they're so smart that they can outsmart God and they can give you all these little reasons why the Bible doesn't fit and these inconsistencies, wait. Be patient. Walk with it. God will always show us His truth. For the Christian, He'll open through the Holy Spirit the Word of God and we'll see it. There's no way man wrote this book. Man's not smart enough to put this together. It fits together perfectly because God is the author using 40 different people to write it. They used to wonder Pontius Pilate, who had, uh, was the Roman governor who had Jesus crucified. Is he real? There's no evidence of Pontius Pilate. But they dug up in Caesarea, Maritime, where Paul was in prison. I got a picture of it. They found what's called the Pilate Stone. In 1961, this stone here on, the, on, on this side, that's the replica of where they found it. The stone on this side is the actual Pilate stone that's in the Israel Museum. And it mentions that Pilate was a man who actually lived. God's word stands. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948, they found a copy of Isaiah, a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. One of the longest books in the Bible, 66 chapters. They found a completed copy, and it was a thousand years older than the other oldest copy. And they found it was 99.5% the same. Accurate. The only things that they found that really were slightly different were slight changes in linguistics of how we speak. No doctrine, no statement, nothing had changed. God preserves his word. He protects his word. I used to, when I would go to Israel, I loved, I loved taking people there and showing them the sites. We'd go see Bethsaida. That's the fishing village of uh, John, James, Peter, I mean, Philip and Andrew. They all were from this fishing village. But the, it was up on a hill and it was like a half mile away or a mile away from the Sea of Galilee. And I would ask people, why is this so far from the water? It's a fishing village. And they said, well, we think the water may have been in a different spot at the time and maybe the geography's changed a bit. And I said, well, good. Three years ago, I was in Israel and I drove by and I saw this archaeological dig right at the edge of the Sea of Galilee. 
And I found out shortly after that archaeological dig is the accurate city of Bethsaida. You see, God's word keeps bearing itself true. Not one jot, not one iota will fall away. We can trust God's word. And Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the word of God. No, I've come to fulfill all that it points to. Jesus goes on to say, if you teach others to not obey, he says, if you teach others He says, whoever relaxes the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. He doesn't say that they won't be a Christian, but if you're a Christian who is teaching others to not take the word of God seriously, if you're a Christian who takes the commands that Christ calls us to and says, I'm just not going to follow them or, or obey them, that's how he's called us to live. If you relax those and you teach others to do that, you'll be called least in the kingdom. But he says, for the Christian, the one who does them, and who teaches them to others, you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. One of the, James talks about the seriousness of teaching. One of the things I'm always afraid of is that a careless word or something I misunderstand in my own study could negatively impact people. But I'll tell you where I don't worry. God's word will accomplish its purpose. And my greatest desire is to preach the Word of God. And that's one of the the beauties of IEC. We are a church that has for a long time preached the Word of God. We don't preach the opinions of man because they matter none. Man's opinions come and go. Man's opinions change quickly. The Word of God will stand and it will stand forever. There's only two things you and I have access to that are eternal here on earth. That's the Word of God and the souls of humanity. And God calls us to invest deeply in both of those. Invest deeply in His Word, invest deeply in people. So church, I say to you, I pray that we are living our reality of being salt and light in this world. This world has no hope other than Jesus. And God has chosen us to be the one who takes that to the world that adds that flavor to the world, that preserves the world, that adds light to the dark world. That's who we're to be. And one of the beauties is we are a diverse group of people that work in different places, serve in different places. We live in different places. And God wants to use each of us to be salt and light. I pray that each of us will have this experience that when others see the good deeds God does through us, they praise God, our Father, who is in heaven. May that be our story. May that be the story of our church. And may we be a church that lives out of the reality of being salt and light. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. It is good. It is true. It's not true because I say so. It's true because you spoke it. And Lord, though feeble man, we may look and question your word at times. Though there's many in this room who may have questioned it at times. Though there's some here today who undoubtedly still question your word. Give them assurance in your word. Give them a confidence in your word. Allow them to see you clearly in your word. And Lord, all of us, all of us recognize we fall short. 
You've called us to be salt and light. That's who we are, Lord. But we don't always live as bright of light as we should. There's times that the saltiness of our life may be dampened. So Lord, pull us back to the great joy, the great joy of living how you've called us to as salt and light in this world. Lord, as we continue to sing and worship, remind us of the joy of our salvation and remind us of the joy of the calling you've placed upon our lives to be salt and light in this world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.